The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Grace. Rare disease registries are critical for improving our understanding of symptoms, complications, treatments, and patient outcomes. And in very rare hematologic conditions, there may only be one or two patients with a given diagnosis at a hematology center. Rare disease registries allow the practicing clinician to draw larger experience to determine monitoring and treatment practices. And remote participation is possible in some rare disease registries, including the PEAK registry, which is the topic of our conversation today. This means you don't have to travel in order to participate, and you can go to the website peakregistry.com to see how to participate. I'm pleased today to be joined by Carl Lander, who is a nurse, patient advocate, and leader of the patient group Thrive with PK Deficiency. He is also the current chair of the steering committee for the Peak Registry. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today. I was wondering if you could explain what the Peak Registry is. So the Peak Registry is in effect, a clinical database of a whole variety of information about people with PK deficiency. And it, it is a global registry. And the whole idea is that we can follow people's life course from the time they join the registry and every time new data is uploaded. And that means we can have a really good look at what is happening with people's lives clinically and actually some impact on them individually. How do people join the Peak Registry or how can they participate? So the key way is that you would talk to your provider locally, wherever you're based, and that you would say that you've got an interest in joining the registry. It might well be that they reach out to you because they've been asked to participate as a principal investigator. And that would then mean that they would pass your details on to the Peak Registry team, who would then go through a whole consent process, either with a different provider, and I understand we're quite close to having a facility across America to do this remotely, because historically you've had to attend a clinic somewhere with a provider, and that is still the case in most nations. The the US legislation allows it now to be done a little bit differently, but you would go along. There are no extra kind of blood tests or interventions or scans that you need. It is all about looking at the records you've got. And the key thing is that through that consent process, you give consent for your records to be shared with the registry team. And it is as simple as that. Some people feel nervous about participating in research. And I wondered if you could walk us through what you think of participating in the peak registry. I think the first thing to say that this is research, but it's not a trial. So we're not asking you to try a new medicine. We're not asking you to try a new kind of product or anything like that, or a new way of treating you. This is all about you giving consent for your information, your clinical data, your history to be used in a huge database. So in that way, it's safe. It is research, as we say. So it does mean that the data has to be amalgamated somewhere, and that is in the USA. So if people within the USA stays in their own country, for others of us, um, I'm in Great Britain. So it does leave my region, my country and come abroad. But that is done through a very safe portal. So there's a lot of protection and firewalls around that. And the data is stored really carefully and used very sensitively. My good friend Tamara Shriver recently wrote alongside TIFF an article, a whole kind of thing about nutrition. 
and she used data from the peak registry but there was a number of hoops she had to jump through before that data was released and she had to prove why she was doing it the efficacy of her work her credentials etc so it's not as if somebody from a, another company can just ring up and say I want to have the names and addresses of 30 people with PKA deficiency to go and sell them a new product. It's a very safe place to have your data. But the pros of it are huge. So we regularly publish at the American Society of Hematology or the European Hematology Association. And from all of that good information that comes out, it empowers people with PKD and their families and perhaps local providers to work with experts And so, look, we've seen this. We've seen this issue arises. For example, we do know about ferritin, unless your iron levels, being high in some people who are never transfused. It was always presumed it was a transfusion that caused that problem. So we now know that actually we need to have better monitoring for people, even if they're not transfused, so we make sure that they don't become iron overloaded. We would never have known that without the peak registry. And to give a personal example, my body has been damaged by iron overload. So if we'd have known this 30, 40 years ago, I wouldn't be quite so unwell as I am now. So as somebody who has been quite affected now by PK deficiency, any idea that we can find out better information, and I am, the whole thing for me is about supporting children, young people with this disease so that we can give them high quality, fun lives and pull this data together to give experts like yourself the best information to keep people safe, happy and and having a fulfilled life. Thank you so much for that. I think too, from a clinician's point of view, we often, when we're talking about research with patients, we think about clinical trials where there's the potential for benefit. And when we think about registries or what we call observational studies where there's not an intervention, then we say, well, this is to help generally people who have this condition and for our future knowledge. When I think about the peak registry, that's true, but I do think that there's potential actually for what we learn in real time to help the individual participant that just as you're saying, we're learning by having people participate about who and how to monitor for certain complications and learning about different potential complications of certain treatments or supportive care. So I think they're, although not in the same way that participating in a clinical trial has the potential for direct benefit, there is the potential for benefit to the individual, I think, with the knowledge we're gaining in real time. And I would say, too, that for people who aren't at an institution or getting care where there's electronic medical records, where they can't see their own lab results or they can't see their own clinical notes. There is opportunity to see your own individual data that's being entered into the registry as a participant so that you can trend your labs or your monitoring tests over time in an electronic way that people can do if there is the availability of electronic records and patient portals. But that's not the case for everyone. And so the registry has the benefit of being able to just look at your own data as a participant in that way. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. 
That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. I think the thing about it being in real time is really important. The steering committee meet annually, but have, have regular conversations. And somebody will ask a question about, could this be an issue? And our colleagues within the registry team are fantastic at delving into that data. I asked a question recently about splenectomies and some of the impact of splenectomies. It's not as if we've got to wait another 10 years to find that information. We can do that now. The great thing about registries and the fact that it is so well put together and the team behind it are so expert in what they do, we can find these trends or not quite quickly. So it is a really, I keep saying, a really worthwhile thing to be involved in. And I would appeal to anybody who's hearing this podcast and isn't involved to talk to your provider. We're looking to have up to 500 people. I think we're about 270 or something now. So we're quite a way off that. But the more people get involved, the more the data quality improves and the more lessons we can learn from it. And can you talk a little bit about what we've learned so far? What are some of the data that have come out to date with information that's been available in the peak registry? I think we've learned quite a lot around the requirements for transfusion. I think we've, as I just said, we've learned about how your iron status is affected even if you don't have transfusions. And we have done some work looking at the impact of splenectomy, and there's a whole lot of other work that is in the pipeline. I think the community of people with PK deficiency and their families are really interested to know that people who, for example, have an average hemoglobin of their own, which is above 10, for example, but still feel symptomatic. I think it's a real benefit that we can say to people, actually, it is worth transfusing people without giving clinical advice, but actually it's worth considering transfusing people who have slightly higher hemoglobins because actually there's a benefit to them across their whole body, really. And I, for one, am somebody who's benefited from that advice. Each nugget of information that comes out does help an individual person. Maybe it doesn't, and not everything affects everybody, but many people. And, and then we're starting to answer the questions that have been out there in the community for a long time, because they're the things, particularly parents who worry that their children are tired and lethargic, but can't seem to get what they see as the required care. It's not always, of course, but actually there's an evidence base that you can take to your provider. And there may be reasons why they won't want to do it, and that may be because it's not safe or whatever in their scenario, but actually there's a good evidence base that supports conversations at the very beginning. Some other interesting data that have already emerged from the registry too, as a pediatric hematologist, is around the clinical presentation in newborns and how different it can be in different babies who have parvovic kinase deficiency. And I think as a medical community, we sometimes have trouble recognizing the kinds of symptoms or findings a baby might have that would lead you to, to pursue testing for parvovic kinase deficiency. And so we're learning through the peak registry about some of the more, what I would say, severe, severely affected or severe presentation might look like with babies that have an enlarged liver or spleen, organs in the abdomen, or have test abnormalities that typically we don't think of as being associated with parvovic kinase deficiency, like having a low platelet count, the blood clotting cell after birth. So it, I think this is helpful for neonatologists, pediatricians, and pediatric hematologists in trying to recognize which young people, babies to pursue testing and recognizing that there's this wide range in terms of what symptoms somebody might have, and it may not be 
anemia with the jaundice alone at birth and maybe with these additional more complicated signs and symptoms that babies can have early on. Another interesting part of the registry too has been that there's real global participation. And prior to the peak registry, there was the pervic kinase deficiency natural history study that had international participation, mainly though in North America and in Europe. And the peak registry has expanded beyond that. And there are interesting data emerging too about differences that are regional in terms of the types of complications that people have and what seems to be the way in which people might be managed. It's always a little bit difficult to tell the difference between the symptoms and complications in the way that the providers manage patients. But I think that also is going to be helpful in terms of being information that gives us a more global look on how pervic kinase deficiency affects individuals and whether it differs by country or how practices differ by country and how that practice alone affects patients. And going back to the thing you said about the the pediatric data, I think something that struck me was the fact that one symptom could be cardiac disease in a child or coronary artery disease. And I just found that absolutely amazing that you'd have such a, almost a remote symptom from a hematology disorder, but actually now we know that it's very easy to say, well, that's what we see in whatever way we've investigated it. And you can start to think of a whole range of diagnoses, not just a cardiac diagnosis. So it allows neonates and children with some really curious symptoms to possibly be diagnosed much quicker. I mean, I received some hospital notes from when I was young the other day, and I wasn't finally diagnosed till I was 11 years old. They had a rough idea when I was about four or five, and I had my spleen taken out when I was six. But we didn't have a proper diagnosis. And, and it's amazing to think that we can have that diagnosis so much quicker because of some of these things in this data to very unusual symptoms could well be picked up much earlier and get the right treatment in at the right time. So it is, the benefits are huge and will be there forever now. Absolutely. I think too, the availability of genetic testing is so different now than it was even five or 10 years ago. Obviously, still not everywhere, but much more available and clinically approved versus in a research setting alone. And so I think that's been incredibly helpful from a diagnostic perspective and obviously helpful in the setting of transfusions and other things that make enzyme testing and other testing difficult. Absolutely. I wondered how your perspective on participating on the steering committee for the peak registry from a patient perspective, how that's felt. And I wonder how you feel about chairing the steering committee, being the chair of the peak registry and what you have planned during the time that you have this leadership position. Initially, it was quite scary. So my first meeting, because it was towards the end of COVID, and we had a Teams meeting with about, I think, 15 haematology experts from around the world. So that's quite daunting. And my first impression was people were very welcoming and actually really interested to hear that patient perspective. And I, I think when we were in Frankfurt earlier this year, I think that was exemplified when we'd finished the meeting and then we probably had another half hour conversation about living with the disease and, and everybody was really interested. And, and that's the thing that is so beneficial about having colleagues around that table and having, I think, having a patient in the room is that, yes, there are some really complicated conversations that I don't understand. I'm a nurse by background, so some of it is okay to understand, but some of the kind of the biochemistry and the inner workings of how iron is absorbed and dealt with in the body, they're perhaps a bit beyond me. But the welcoming and the way in which people want to hear, and, and if I make a suggestion and everyone's, that's really interesting. Sometimes there's a reason why people don't think it's a good idea to go down that road, but people are always very polite and caring in their responses and very nice about things. 
In terms of what we want to achieve, there is a cycle of projects planned, which I, I guess in this kind of forum probably can't go into in great detail. But for me, it is to continue to push the patient story and to push the idea that actually listen to the patient. There's lots of evidence out there that says this is how patients feel, what the symptoms are like, and what the data looks like behind them. And go with the whole story, not just, as we say very often, just with the numbers. And I would say colleagues in the registry really understand that. I think my other ambition is to increase the numbers. So we are planning to have some sort of event, perhaps a webinar, early next year. It's not finalised yet, but something that will come from myself as a patient and chair, and we will try and reach out to investigators again to increase the numbers that are involved. We'll also do a whole lot of PR with people with PK deficiency and their families. I gave a talk last year at the conference we held in Florida for the Thrive with PKD charity, and we'll continue to do that and we'll continue to reach out. Now, in terms of paediatrics, for example, there are a number of trials ongoing now with drugs, but we know that you can still join the registry. And we need to make it really clear, particularly because of this remote sign-up now, remote enrolment, and actually it's not a great deal of work just to allow your data to be used. It's not a thing where you have to fly from the north of America down to uh, Arizona or somewhere, as we well, have a friend who does that, and it's easy to do. So I think that's the big thing, is to keep the numbers up and to expand it as much as possible. And if we could reach the 350, 400 mark, I think that would be a really good move for us. And that's something that I really want to do over the next year. I agree. And I would just say that your participation is key to the whole registry. You know, I thinking about researchers and clinicians sitting around a table, the steering committee, that people could have interesting ideas or interesting scientific ideas. But what we really want to achieve is what matters to people who are affected with pyruvate kinase deficiency in their families, that we're trying to improve people's lives and the, their quality of life and keep people healthy. So I think we need to have our ear to the patient voice. We need to be directed with what matters to people in terms of which kinds of data analysis we're pursuing and trying to find answers that are really going to be helpful to people and answer questions that come up in clinical care that need to be answered. So I really appreciate your participation on the steering committee and I'm excited about your chair position and in directing where the analysis is in the upcoming years. I think that'll be so important and make sure that we keep the analysis as relevant to patient care as possible. Thank you. And I think it's a partnership entirely so that there will be scientific and researchy questions that you think you want to answer and you'll know why. It may not be a thing the community really thinks of because it's not an area that they may be expert in. So it is truly a partnership and making sure that we totally work together so that I can feed in what people are asking for. And it might not be information that we can draw out from it or, or any kind of ideas we'll get from it, but it's about also talking to people out there. And that's something I think through the next year, I want to do more and more of outreach and just be sure that we are asking the questions that people are answering. So we have a plan for our papers and abstracts, et cetera, for the next year or two. But there's always room for manoeuvre. If something really urgent comes up, then we can investigate that. And I think it's having those conversations. And I just think the long-term future of the health of people with PK deficiencies massively improves by this data. But it is, as you say, you need to know what questions we've got. And we need to listen to you when you say, actually, this would be a really useful thing to investigate. And people very openly explain why that might be. And then we agree that's the way forward. 
I agree with what you said that the numbers actually really matter for participation. And I think sometimes what happens is people who need more interventions are more likely to participate. And those who need fewer interventions related to their pyruvic kinase deficiency are less likely to participate. And we really need to understand the whole spectrum and the way in which pyruvate kinase deficiency affects people. And so I would say that even if you felt or you feel for your family member that it's not worth it or there's not enough going on or things that have come up related to pyruvate kinase deficiency, that's really not true for a registry that it really needs to be a lot of people are willing to participate. And that's the only way to get a full picture of what the clinical picture is for the group or the clinical needs are for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency. And wouldn't it be exciting if we started to understand why people have so many different symptoms or different levels of symptom with perhaps the same hemoglobin every day? If we could find that out. So people, yes, you're entirely right, people who are less symptomatic, have less hospital visits, et cetera, et cetera. I think there is a case we're seeing is it's probably everybody has to have a reasonable amount of monitoring and we possibly don't do that all the time for people. So there's a reason that's coming out of the registry says you ought to probably provide her more often than you are, quite possibly. But also to say, well, if you're fairly fit and well overall, why is that? What is it going on inside you that is different to somebody else who is very symptomatic? Is it the genetics? Is it this and that? So yes, I think entirely people who are less symptomatic, I think they're the ones that we're really interested. We know a lot about people who are quite poorly now, don't we? Because they're the people that we see all the time. So absolutely, I totally agree with you. I wondered with your work with Thrive, if you have other examples of questions that have come up in the patient and family community that you think might be answered or addressed by data that's in the peak registry. I think the key things we talk about are, should I or should I not have a splenectomy? What are the side effects? What are the benefits? We talk a lot about numbers versus symptoms. So we kind of cover a lot of it anyway. And I think that's what we now need to start reaching out to people and saying, what are the new questions you've got? And obviously that fits then alongside with, you know, your transfusions status and your iron status. These are the, the, probably the four things that people talk about a lot. I think what is also really important is we look at what new therapies there are, what impact they're having without talking about products, but the impact they're having. And that data will be available in the registry once it's flowed through far enough. You know, I talk regularly to people when we have stories about our histories, et cetera. We have to say, look, I'm 53 now. I was born in 1970. I had care of the 1970s and 80s. And I'm in a situation health-wise now, which isn't fantastic, but this won't happen to your children because your diagnosis is earlier, your monitoring, your interventions are much better. And I think that would be a really important thing to show from the registry that as young children who are registry now in eight years time, perhaps, it's a nine year long registry. So we've got a little bit of time to see that. And actually, we can see that we're managing people much better at an early age. And I think that's what people really want to see, that symptomatically they're managed, but also they're managed in terms of monitoring and making sure that their health status is as good as it can be for the long term. And I have to say, that's why we call the nonprofit Thrive. It's about people thriving. It's about people getting the best out of life from having the right care at the right time. I agree. We need long-term follow-up of the young people who are involved in the peak registry. And hopefully we'll be able to extend the follow-up even longer because, as you're saying, there are new interventions that are underway. And we really do need to understand the impact of those over decades, really, in much the same way that we'd like to understand, as you were saying, the effect of splenectomy. We know 
for most people, it will decrease transfusions and increase hemoglobin over the short term. But what does it mean if you had a splenectomy as a child and now you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s in terms of long-term complications or issues or even the effect of the splenectomy itself on your anemia or red cell breakdown? I'm hopeful that we'll be able to extend the follow-up to really learn how some of the newer potential interventions might make a difference in terms of the natural history of what's previously happening with pyruvate kinase deficiency compared to what we hope will be the future with new treatments and, and, and a better idea about what's needed in terms of monitoring. Absolutely. And hearing you say that without wishing to embarrass you, we've got to say from the community, thank you to you for starting off the natural history study and taking that, that impetus to see the future that we need. And I think that's the thing that has driven various organizations, companies, etc., to look at this blood disorder, to look at it in, in real depth and come up with ways, not of curing it, I mean, some will perhaps, but of actually of managing it really effectively. You know, I think we all are utterly grateful for everything you've done for us because you've put us on the map. And having been to Boston last year for, the, for a meeting with yourselves about um, the guidelines, the dedication in the room from people around the world, not just on the peak registry team, but particularly who you do this for your job every day and you could go home at night and I've been to work, I've come home, but actually you are dedicating your lives to making our lives better. So what greater honor can we have from people like yourself? So thank you. Thank you too. The peak registry, the PKD natural history study, all the work that's being done, it takes a large community to be invested in trying to make a difference for patients and people affected by pyruvate kinase deficiency. And it takes the entire affected community too. You can't have a registry just with the clinicians who are directing the registry at the sites. You have to have all of the patients and families be interested in participating. So it takes a large community who invested in trying to learn more and make a difference in terms of care. And so it really speaks to that broad community of hematologists and other clinicians and patients and families and caregivers, that there's this deep investment. And I think it's reflected in the great progress that's been made over the last five to 10 years. And I think in all of our hope for the future in terms of the difference that progress will make and the progress to come. Absolutely. Carl, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about the Peak Registry. Really appreciate all of your thoughts and I'm excited for your leadership over the next few years as chair of the steering committee. And I know our listeners will be interested in all of our conversation today about the Peak Registry. So thank you. Thank you. It's a total pleasure. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is nokpkdeficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.